On February 14, 2021, snow began to fall on the state of Texas. As a winter storm hit, the demand for electricity rose, causing the state's power grid to fail. As Texans struggled to stay warm, many blamed decades of deregulation and a lack of investment in public infrastructure. After decades of retreat, the emerging climate crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic have led to calls for a more interventionist state. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion of politics, international relations, and current affairs, brought to you by City, University of London. Today, we'll give you the city view on whether there are national solutions to global problems. Well, hello there. It's a new year. Joe Biden's president. There was some light treason in the United States. COVID-19 is keeping us all indoors still. And it's series two of the City Politics Podcast. I'm joined in studio by Constantine Vossing, the hierophantic keeper of the city crystal ball. How are you going, Constantine? Very well, thank you. And today we are joined by two guests. First is Anastasia Nezvitalyova, Professor of International Political Economy. How are you, Anastasia? I'm very well, David. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. And we're also joined by Stefano Pagliari, Senior Lecturer in International Politics. How are you, Stefano? I'm good. I was wondering when I was going to get the invite, so... I'm glad. Oh, well, you know, we have so much demand from people to be on the City Politics podcast. It is the Internet's most popular podcast uh, in all categories, not just politics. So, you know, there was a bit of a waiting list. So this year, we're going to start off our new series with a big topic, the state. The pandemic has seen a revival of state power, travel restrictions, lockdowns, economic intervention, and stresses on a lot of multilateral cooperation with the emergence of vaccine nationalism. Can the state meet the challenges of the 21st century? Pandemic diseases, rising global inequality, and an escalating climate crisis. Before we get into that topic, we need to have a look in the city crystal ball. Constantine, would you do the honors? Thank you so much, David, for that intro. Something's been missing in my life uh, without the crystal ball for the past uh, few months. Forcing people to give me yes or no answers, that's a, that's a beautiful thing, right? So that's going to be 10 questions, uh, and I'm going to ask you, to answer each of them with either yes or no. And these questions are, hence the crystal ball, these are questions about the future. So I'm asking you to use your knowledge and your expertise on the topic to, to divine the future, to look into the future and give us a sense of where we're heading. Let's start with question number, number one, uh, Anastasia. Um, Ronald Reagan once said, quote, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Will the post-COVID future prove him right? No. Stefano? Uh, I agree with Anastasia, no. Number two, will the return of the state caused by COVID-19 be temporary? No. Yes, I'll take a different side here. Yes, that's great. We love uh, we love controversy and debate. So yeah, you have a different you have different views on that. That's good. Number three, do previous episodes of statism, such as the welfare state, provide a model to deal with 21st century problems? Anastasia. Yes. Stefano. I'm not sure. I, I, I probably I would say yes. Number four. Anastasia, will the state ever wither away? No. Stefano. Oh boy, ever, ever is a long time horizon. So I think the, the answer is, uh, is yes, but I'm not sure about the timeline. Anastasia, is it possible to be a globalist and a statist at the same time? Yes. Stefano. Yes, but it is an uncomfortable standing. Number six, in the future, will democracy help to solve global challenges like climate change, global inequality, recurring pandemics, and so on? Stefano. I like to say yes. I'm not that convinced that I believe that answer. So what is, what is it going to be, yes or no? Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll say a yes. Thanks. Anastasia. Not necessarily. I'll take that as a no. Number seven, uh, Stefano, uh, is Think Global, Act Local a good guideline for public policy? Yeah, no, it, it is in the sense that it's a premise for action, um, including global action. Yes, if you do it cleverly. Um, number eight, Stefano, in a decade or so, will we see a neo-neoliberalism opposing the then dominant neo-neo-statism? Yes, because academics make a career out of making new names. Yes, to an extent, because it's a cycle. Thank you. Uh, number nine, Stefano, in 20 years or so, will state planning finally work out with flashy digital technology? Yeah, uh, I say yes. I, I'm not going to elaborate, but yes. 
I'm not sure flashy, but digital for sure. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, the flashy was my addition. I could have just dropped that. That is a good point. Number 10, Stefano. Will finding consensus between generations be a bigger challenge than finding it between social classes? No, but it's a very good question. Uh, not necessarily, I would say. Okay, I'll lock that as a no. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for doing the crystal ball with us. Perhaps we should start with our first disagreement, which is over the return of the state caused by COVID-19. We had two responses, uh, in the positive and the negative, as to whether this would be a permanent return. Uh, Anastasia, would you like to explain your answer? Yes, I think I would explain it in at least, uh, or by at least two factors. First of all, the state has never been not there, if you think historically and carefully. Everything that we're so used to think as very global, liberal, uh, market-led, it doesn't happen without a political authority authorizing this movement, has always been the case. Um, no matter how uh, flashy capital or private initiative tends to um, take, take up the headlines, any act of deregulation or opening of the market or initiating a new industry requires a political decision or an act of even deregulation is a political step. So that's one caveat. It, it, the state has always been there. It's a, it's a question of which function it performed and which, if you want ideology, it, it, it held. Number two, uh, more recently, and we're talking about post-2009, the state has been an active capitalist. The markets, the financial markets, the most privatized, volatile, um, if you want the most aggressive measurement and platform for risk-taking, now cannot function without state support. They would panic massively and we would face a massive financial implosion if suddenly ma major central banks tomorrow morning announce that that's it guys, you're now on your own, the state is retreating. We will be on the verge of a major financial disaster, which probably will, you know, it will be quite a systemic crisis. So the markets, which according to theory should be very afraid, just as Constantine gave me the quote from Reagan, the markets theoretically, according to textbooks, should be very allergic to anything coming from the state, to any uh, signal of state support, potential um, subsidy or plan. They now cannot operate without it. They are completely hooked on, on financial aid, on fiscal aid, on promises, um, on being quite close to, to the idea of the state, the state apparatus, be through either lobby groups, interest groups, any, any investment initiative, international cooperation, but it's quite a multiple platform or web of, of state support. And the third factor that I would say is that, and this is where the world has changed quite dramatically since the last um, major reform of the 1940s, is that um, it's no longer the Anglo-Saxon world that rules the, the game, uh, these are also big emerging markets. They tend to be state, either state dominated or they tend to display some version of a state corporatist model. And that state presence gives them enormous edge. I'm not sure, I, I wouldn't say it's an advantage, but it's a, certainly a, a very tangible role and a sizable competitive angle or competitive kind of counterweight to any private initiative or you know, private discourse that might come from the more advanced capitalist economies or economists who are still stuck on the ideas of the 1960s and 1970s. So these are my three big kind of conceptual stuff and probably we will de develop it further, but basically the challenges that face the world post COVID cannot be dealt with without the state. It, the, there will be a ma massive risk of, of to the system itself without the state. Well, thank you for that excellent answer. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, off the top of my head, you know, the Reagan quote, I think is really well interpreted. When Reagan was talking about the, the state showing up to help being scary, he tended to be talking about the state showing up to help a particular set of Americans. Uh, the state not showing up to help Wall Street, for example, in 2008 would have been absolutely disastrous. Uh, so. It depends on who uh, the I'm here to help refers to when we're talking about neoliberal orthodoxy. Uh, but before we unpack that, we need to get Stefano's uh, answer. So Stefano, you were in disagreement on this question. So perhaps you'd like to explain a little bit why. In particular, with reference to the current situation and the role of the state in the pandemic, 
I think there are a couple of conflicting forces here. One that goes in the direction of what Anastasia was saying, which is, um, and that gets to the point uh, that you made, I mean, you made reference to the notion of the welfare state. What we know from the scholars on the welfare state is that once new entitlements, new forms of support, new, new forms of state intervention are introduced, then they tend to generate some demand, uh, some constituencies that actually would try to make sure they they, um, they continue to be provided in the future. And uh, this means that any attempt to win down some of the additional support or state involvement in uh, providing a buffer for certain groups in society, it's probably gonna be resisted, uh, which suggests actually a continuation. But the reason why I thought I said that actually there's gonna be uh, ultimately, I think, a decrease in the amount of state involvement in a number of areas that's a two. One is the fact that the reality of COVID uh, is uh, often experienced through lenses that are, tend to be um, often ideologically driven. Uh, people have a different view on actually the extent to which uh, the state should be involved, uh, the extent to which the issue is a threat, especially in the United States, but also in other countries. It's a very polarizing and polarized thing. So many people have been experienced uh, uh, the current phase differently based on their pre-existing ideological lenses. And the other is the extent to which actually has the state been the driving force in a number of aspects about the response to the pandemic. Clearly, it has been in terms of providing economic support. Uh, but when it comes to a lot of the health response, uh, um, we haven't seen massive nationalization of the, uh, a number of uh, key sectors which do not just the vaccines, but in general, uh, the mechanisms of the response. So I'm a bit on, on two minds on the extent to which we have seen uh, such a transformative moment beyond just simply expanding some of the more traditional uh, safety net uh, uh, that uh, was already in place. Yeah, I mean, I think that point's well taken uh, on a comparative front, right? You know, depending on what state we're talking about, we're seeing a very different reaction to COVID-19. Uh, certainly Trump's hesitancy to activate, uh, what is it, the Defense Production Act to sort of national or to compel private industries to produce vaccine or vaccine related materials and personal protective equipment was seen as, you know, pretty controversial. But yeah, I mean, I, I take that point well. I would love to jump in on uh, that, that point that Anastasia made uh, in terms of, you know, who benefits from the state right now and what's the politics of um, of the state and the, the role of the state right now. And uh, so you said that, you know, the, the role of the state and sort of its current return uh, is different from sort of the way in which uh, it, it, it previous uh, appearances looked like. You know, most importantly, you said that private enterprise nowadays needs and wants the state. And this is quite different from uh, how we talked about the role of the state in the 1980s, when there was this clear dividing line between, supposedly clear, between those who wanted the state in order to maintain the welfare state. And then, you know, all those forces of, of you know, pr private enterprise that were against the state because it limited and curtailed their freedom. This is obviously uh, what is uh, uh, evident in, uh, in, in, in Ronald Reagan's um, uh, quote. And now my question to you guys is, um, how does that uh, sort of that change in sort of who benefits from the state? Uh, how does it affect um, the, uh, the political conflict about the state in the future? Uh, who wants the state? Who wants to reduce its influence today? Um, how is that different from the 1980s? And, and how will that affect the party systems of the future? You know, will businesses all of a sudden become statist and uh, and, and and everyone else, uh, you know, leftists will will become um, will become neoliberal? If you want to sort of reverse roles like that, is that what it's what, what it's going to look like? The party system of the future. So, if you buy the view that somehow the party system is the result of some deep-rooted transformation in society and uh, either the materialistic uh, uh, configuration of, of the way society is structured or some kind of big uh, ideological innovations. What of what we have seen over the last 12 months uh, suggests that any of these two transformations has really occurred? That's where I'm kind of a bit skeptical on the, on the idea that uh, we can read too much from the last 12 months uh, into, I mean, you can project from the last two months into the future, because at least to my, in my mind, it's not really clear what is gonna stick 
12 months from now of this transformation, assuming that we're able to return to some sort of status quo in, uh, in the way the economy works and so forth, which may not be the case. But if you have asked this question, I think you probably have something in mind. Well, um, I mean, we've uh, we've had a recurring conversation in this podcast about sort of the structure of, um, of political conflict, because this is a moment where there is some kind of fundamental change in many different ways. Issues of race have come on the agenda, uh, climate change uh, as a new issue, the question of competence versus, you know, uh, you know, being against expertise, uh, science versus no science, and now the role of the state. And you see this reconfiguration of lines of conflict. And I'm just wondering, you know, whether that's what's going to stick. Actually, I'm going to ask, ask myself that question. What of these new dividing lines that are popping up right now, which one's going to stick? Uh, and is the, the fact that, as Anastasia said, that the fact that now lots of businesses uh, sort of depend on the state, is that going to stick? Is that going to turn you know, business associations around in who they support and what kind of sort of political parties they fund and, and, and where they are on the political uh, dividing line? Yeah, to just jump in on that, one of the things that struck me this morning, I was looking at the news from Texas, where there's been this massive snowstorm that's knocked out their electric grid. And there's been this really interesting reaction to this. You know, on one hand, you have people talking about decades of non-investment in infrastructure, decades of deregulation being the culprits behind it. And on the other side, you have people blaming the power outages on renewable energy and windmills freezing or wind turbines freezing in the, uh, in the snow. And it strikes me, you know, the facts and ideology are really sort of very sticky. You know, you, the people who are saying, oh, it's climate change, it's non-investment, are the people who you would predict, right? These are your Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes. The people who are saying that, oh, this is the uh, fault of Green New Deal, you know, these are the Republicans. Uh, so, you know, even in the face of what is a catastrophic climate event, you see those ideological lines really seem to be holding in place, at least in their major vocal proponents. So I guess, you know, one of the things that will be interesting to see is whether the actual people, your average citizen, are going to start shifting positions because it seems like there's not going to be a lot of reorientation from the leaders in, uh, in the politics. I think it, the answer to the question will depend on whether you, what's the time horizon. And so my initial reaction was, well, thinking about the current COVID pandemic, and that's where it's a bit unclear on what the reconfiguration of the political force is going to be. In terms of climate change, I, it's clear that it's going to have a major impact in the reconfiguration of the political alliances, uh, potentially the party systems. And that's because of the uneven impact that uh, climate change is going to have regionally uh, in terms of who's going to be the uh, most affected individual in each country based on location. So coastal areas versus areas that are less likely to be affected by flooding but also in terms of the fact that different types of businesses are gonna be more or less affected by the transformation associated with climate change. So I think that's absolutely gonna happen. The timeline is a bit unclear and the point you made about how the fact that the reality is mediated by pre-existing uh, filters, sometimes ideological, sometimes uh, other type of way in which people are actually processing that information is gonna slow down uh, that type of transformation. Uh, but yeah, I do think that that's gonna be a much more transformative type of change compared to just the current return of the state in the context of the pandemic, which to me is a bit less transformative. Anastasia, you wanted to, um, to, to follow up on that. Yes, I'm a little bit not on my native ground because it's party politics, but uh, going back to what I said about this implicit, but very important, implicit kind of um, implicit, but material presence of the state so far. I think uh, David is right that these quite embedded ideological and um, kind of identity alliances will remain. But I, I always believe that there are deep material factors that determine uh, ideological or cultural or kind of other, other types of preferences. And one of the, the reason you're asking these questions, the reason they arise not only here, but sometimes now in the news and other polemical um, kind of meetings is that um, it's quite an unusual unanticipated almost, an unusual turn of events. The crisis, global challenge, uh, lack of recipe to deal with, um, and quite a formidable performance, again, by the state 
in, in solving some of, at least some of the issues of the pandemic and governance. Um, in political economy terms, that means that, and the behavior of financial markets recently, that means that, to me, it suggests that there isn't a recipe book, there isn't a textbook of how to price all these things that are going on. They haven't been written before. It doesn't exist in textbooks. Such a crisis, for some reason, hadn't been conceptualized. Because they hadn't been priced, they're not reflected as yet in existing kind of party membership or party political topography. But they're very common, they're very important, and they concern all major economies, all major societies. And I will venture a guess that because they're so common, it will be a center ground political movement or a politician or a political figure or a set of political figures that will be talking about the material language, again, the common necessity, the, the, consen the consensual way of resolving various issues. And there are issues concerning very fat cows that are supposedly immune to crises or political movements. And the majority of us who are very exposed to risks and um, economic, political, social, cultural um, of post-COVID recovery. So I, I don't, there has to be, I don't see any other way of in the political economy mechanism not to produce a new center, um, center ground. How long it will take, what will be the foundation um, who will be playing a major role are questions that are, are yet to be answered. So if you allow me to move on from sort of the analytical debate that we've had so far to sort of a more of a not prescriptive or, or, or a normative question, you know, we talked about whether the state uh, is back in style and we've said that it is and whether it's temporary or not and what the political implications are of that. Um, but the question really is, should it be back? Should it have already been brought back and should it stay or should it go? It's a long-standing and very ideologically rooted debate and I, I don't know exactly how to um, answer the question in a way that is not just a reflection of or regurgitation of some kind of uh, already widely abused uh, ideological tropes about the, the benefits of the state. In general, if, well, I think what has become clear uh, is the, or what has been reinforced uh, in terms of the recent experience is the the fragility of the economy in the absence of some kind of ultimate uh, activist role of the state in backstopping the economy and beyond the economy when uh, risks such as the one we have seen over the last uh, 12 months uh, materialize themselves. Uh, the contrarians will also point out that uh, it was in the state uh, that has been, has been giving us the way out of the current pandemic. And then there's a contrarian to the contrarian that will argue that, well, actually, uh, in many ways, uh, it was. I think we're going to be repeating some of the old debates on this. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, or at least it's not clear to me, but I'd be curious to see what you guys think, is uh, to what, the, what has really changed over the last uh, 12 months or beyond that that has uh, injected new life into this uh, debate, or what kind of new piece of evidence will kind of get us to reconsider our previous positions. I think, I mean, it's a really interesting question. And, you know, as a political philosopher, I could regurgitate a whole mess of stuff about the justifications of the state. But I think one of the really interesting questions that's emerged, and it's not just emerged from COVID, I think it's been building since the financial crisis, is who's the state for? Right? I think we can probably all say that there's no anarchists in this uh, podcast at the moment. Uh, I'm always willing to be converted. Uh, but you know, people think that the state is generally a good, but it is certainly producing benefits and burdens for different sectors of society. And certainly since the financial crisis, there has been this growing sense that it has been funneling the advantages to a very select group of people with the perhaps sort of trickle down belief animating it that this will benefit all of society. But if we look at the way in which inequality is diverging internationally and domestically in some cases, I think there's a big question about who is the state for? Is it for the elite or is it for the majority of people? And this, in a lot of ways, animates both left-wing and right-wing politics, right? Whether we're talking about Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, uh, we're talking about people who are engaged with uh, the abuse of the elites or the sort of challenging of the elites. 
And that is a question that I think COVID is certainly showing that people are expecting the state to do a lot more to help the average person, right? Whether it's through furlough, uh, whether it's through providing uh, effective vaccination programs, uh, it's no longer about ensuring that there's enough liquidity on Wall Street. Uh, it's about ensuring that there's enough vaccine on Main Street. And that, I think, is a big change in thinking uh, based on sort of, you know, the post-Reagan or Thatcher consensus uh, in the Anglo-Saxon world, at least. I think, you see, I think the trick of the question is that everybody wants the state. It's just that it appears as very different entity to different classes, to different social groups and to whoever has a claim on it. But clearly everybody wants it and needs it, even if they, you know, have their private interests maybe elsewhere. And I'm talking about very, very few proportionately rich individuals who probably spend their life jumping on helicopters or jets from one state to another, simply not to be in one location for more than six months in order to avoid being exposed to the state and uh, be, be forced to pay the tax. They, they spend their, most of them, well, not more, they spend a lot of their money, they spend a lot of their capital time and effort to try to kind of arbitrage between different sovereign jurisdictions, but they still do need that sovereign jurisdiction, for example, in order to protect their wealth, in order to guarantee um, a value, in order to guarantee the, um, the, the ability to pass their wealth to future generations or whatever. They, everybody needs the state, it's just the needs are very different. The question is how these will appear in post-COVID political conversation. And I think David is right. A lot of very simple needs will be now, I'm not saying a priority, but a very sensible political argument to make, just like human interaction or the fact that a human being is a social um, kind of animal that we do need society and the society needs to function. It, it would not be a very easy conversation with business or the super elite, but I think I don't see any other uh, way apart from the state being there, albeit in a variety of manifestations. That's a, a really interesting response, Anastasia. It reminded me of something written by one of my favorite, uh, favorite writers, James C. Scott, uh, who's sort of a, an American anthropologist who writes about uh, how oppressed people resist the impositions of the state. And he wrote this great book about the art of not being governed. And he looked at uh, tribal people in the Zomia region, which is sort of Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and how they sort of cross borders and avoid the state by living in geographically isolated positions. And it just struck me as you were speaking that that is exactly what billionaires do as well. And there's this interesting parallel between sort of the people who are in the very highest echelons of global society and people who are at the very lowest. They're both trying to avoid regulation for albeit very different reasons, but that parallel really struck me uh, while you were speaking. Uh, and I think it sort of an, raises an interesting sort of point where there was agreement between Stefano and yourself. And that was over the cleavage between globalists and statists. Because certainly, you know, if you look at uh, political discourse in the media, these seem to be irreconcilable positions, right? You have people uh, will throw these as, uh, as insults at each other, but both of you said that these are not irreconcilable. Uh, so how can we be good statists and good globalists at the same time? A good example of where the debate has been is often presented, but often in an improper way is actually on climate change, what we discussed so far. And so the idea of climate change as the, this area where somehow this, the interests of citizens uh, are to shift the burden on, on uh, other countries. And uh, so we need some kind of globalist attitude to rally countries together and cooperate and uh, recognize that they're all in this together. And what is often missed from the perspective is the fact that if uh, an issue where it's increasingly clear that the main cleavage of it is actually uh, within each country. And uh, the idea of prioritizing uh, the national interest is often uh, just a, a misnomer for prioritizing the interests of specific groups within the that country. And so it, it is an, an area where it's impossible or it's becoming increasingly more difficult to draw a clear distinction between uh, what would be a, a, 
a globally acceptable course of action and what would be a nationally accepted course of action. So I think that's an implication of the fact that a number of, of the global challenges we're seeing right now, they're penetrating much more deeply at the uh, domestic level. So yeah, my, my, my quick answer to which way we actually can recognize, reconcile the two is to, recognize, to realize that uh, a nationalist position uh, uh, cannot ignore uh, the implications of that global issues and global challenges such as climate change have uh, just at the domestic level. I would say, uh, I would acknowledge that there is a perceived clash between global and uh, kind of national, that globalism or neoliberalism or liberalism generally is now a, a very bad word for a lot of groups of people and nationalism is a, is a very comforting illusion of protection or kind of some sort of stability and some, if you want, firmness. I think it's it's clearly a, a political illusion, but it, it doesn't prevent it from being exploited by people who, um, who who do exploit it. But if you look at the core of the clash of the conflict between the two positions, it's really about the time horizon. And that goes directly into one of Constantine's or David's questions about a kind of generational conflict. National politics, especially in democracies, are very short-term. Politicians have, especially electable politicians, they have a very short-term time horizon in which to advocate, formulate, push, you know, solicit support um, their political programs. They at most have five years. That means that they, they have two years of, of actually, actually doing something and then two years they're thinking of how to get re-elected. This is very short and insufficient for any sort of tackling of any global issue. Compounded to that, and probably um, David and Constantine will be much better equipped to tell me the actual figures, but in most democracies, the actively participating voters are not young. They tend to be over a particular age. Unfortunately, it seems that for the older you get, the more, the less concerned you, you are with very global challenges like climate change, which are not really your problem. Maybe this, this can be pushed to younger generation. And this is to me the, 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 the reason or one of the main reasons for this seemingly irreconcilable conflict. So I would suggest um, that if there is a solution, and there has to be a solution. There was a solution. New, what is it called? New labels, Tony Blair offered such a solution. And uh, Iraqi side was quite successful for a long time politically. A socio-political consensus could be only found through younger groups participating in the political process, taking very active support, possibly a reform where it needed to the over 16 be allowed to vote. But essentially, this is where fundamentally the younger generation are the globalists, the older generation, not necessarily. And um, in a democracy, a solution can be in, um, in either revolutionary or evolutionary change of, of political participation through generations. I wanted to speak to a, a related issue um, and that also has something to do with that conflict between globalism and, um, and statism. It is a sort of a long-standing tradition in, 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 in political science, but also in, especially in political economy, uh, to think about countries as you know being, being featuring differences, uh, featuring featuring institutional performative differences of, of various kinds. Um, now we've talked about the COVID response and the role of the state and the return of the state so far, as if it was a global phenomenon. You know that that affects all countries in a similar fashion. Uh, now, I want to suggest that, uh, you know, on various occasions and also in this context uh, of, uh, of a global pandemic, um, there is a, a global challenge and uh, that, that's very uniform in a sense. And, you know, there's, there's one virus, one pandemic that affects all countries alike. So it's, it's actually a, sort of a, almost like a test case for what, what Gurevich uh, analyzed when he, you know, in, in, in his work uh, looked at uh, different national responses to the same kinds of crises. Um, and now, what's going on there um, right now uh, when it comes to um, cross-national differences um, in terms of that return of the state? Um, are the responses of, of different countries uh, to the, the, the COVID challenge and foreseeably in the future other global challenges, um, are they the same? 
Um, are there already huge sort of visible differences uh, in sort of uh, the role of the state and, 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 and in the response to these, this crisis across different countries? Um, what do you see right now and, and what do you see happening there in the future? Are we going to have a sort of a new configurations of, um, of different types of, of statism across the world? One element that strikes me is the fact that uh, when it comes to uh, the narrowly defined response to the pandemic, uh, both in terms of uh, health measures as well as economic support measures, there have been leaders and laggards, but there has been some relatively a relatively consistent response across multiple countries, and I think that because uh, in part it was an issue of emulation, the nature of the challenge, which was a different type of challenge, was an, uh, the pandemic, uh, led to a fairly consensual set of policy responses or emulation from one country to the other, with the odd exception, of course. Uh, but we, we haven't seen any country that has uh, refused to impose lockdown completely, even the, those that were presented as uh, standing on side have actually taking more actions. On, on the economic side, we're in this weird situation where some of the constraints that would lead to different responses have been currently swept under the, uh, the rug. Countries have been able to um, provide generous economic support by borrowing from the market, and there is not currently much uh, constraints on, this, on the capacity to borrow or having the central banks uh, intervene. So I, I, I think the, the current pandemic is not probably the best uh, challenge or scenario if you want to actually nitpick or identify different course of actions. And in part because of the, how sudden it was, how novel it felt, at least in the Western economy. And we haven't seen, at least in my view, the type of very divergent responses that we saw in the other more kind of slow burning crisis, climate change is one we mentioned before, demographic change and other type of crisis of that type. Anastasia, what do you think? Uh, is there sort of one one national response, one national role of the state um, by and large, or are there significant national differences already? I think when the differences were marked, or at least where we can talk about them, again goes back to the one of the questions you raised in your um, introduction about expertise and uh, competence, and that concerns states broadly look I have to say broadly it has been the same the state has been supportive central banks were very uh, eager to help the treasuries were eager to pump the money and um, um, overall the program was to to sustain the aggregate demand which was the only reasonable solution in the current situation within that I think there's been a development or a trend of countries being managed by women <laughs> for coping better with the pandemic. I'm, again, I, I lack the, the historical expertise to analyze it properly as a political scientist, but the, it's a notable evidence of some cross-national deviation. Those either regions or countries where a woman or a set of women were in charge seem to have fared much more effectively, better, and uh, with more resilience through the crisis. It could be a combination of events, but I would just say that in one of the earlier crisis episodes in Iceland, one of the post-crisis effects was a almost very significant gen gender change in um, at ministerial level which uh, was associated, I'm not saying it was the cause of the country striving uh, much better in post-crisis reform, but it was associated with Icelandic success uh, post-banking collapse in 2008. That there was a change in, in kind of very men-dominated cabinet to um, a different gender agenda or gender governance mode. Yeah, I would just sort of agree with what Anastasia is saying, the gender politics of COVID uh, sort of might be a consequence that a lot of people aren't looking at right now. But if you sort of ask the average informed person, you know, who has been a good leader during the pandemic, it's probably going to be Jacinta Ardern, they're going to name uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who has sort of been a very effective democratic leader at containing the virus. And that certainly seems to be one of the big cleavages is that democracies haven't covered themselves in glory, at least there's a perception that they haven't covered themselves in glory uh, during this crisis. 
But perhaps we might want to say, well, it's not actually a crisis of democracy, it's a crisis of masculinity. And that democracies, when they're run by women like Angela Merkel uh, or Jacinta Ardern, tend to be more effective than their male-dominated counterparts. Uh, but it does reveal these sort of really interesting intersections in dealing with crisis, that it's not simply the global north and the global south, democracies and autocracies, male governed or women governed. Uh, it is a mixture of all of them, which is creating a really complicated mosaic about how to deal with crises, which is fascinating for those of us who are interested in political science. Perhaps it's a little bit troubling for those of us who are living in the real world. Well, I guess we do live in the real world. Uh, but being able to look at this complex mosaic, it looks like chaos, right? It looks like there isn't a uniformed response that one can have to crises uh, because we don't really know what works or not. Uh, or am I being needlessly pessimistic? I tend to sort of shift into a bit of pessimism in the last sort of 20 to 15 minutes of the podcast. So we've learned that in terms of sort of cross-national differences to the current crisis, um, female leadership is a decisive factor. And, and I agree with that. And the evidence points to that. Um, then we've also heard, though, that um, functional responses uh, are sort of, uh, you know, what would how you both, Anastasia and Stefano, characterize different national governments. And there was this tenor that... Um, there is leadership that makes a difference. But other than that, you know, most countries by and large did similar things and sort of the right things. And there was really not much of an alternative um, to many of the policies that were enacted in response to the crisis. Now, the question to me is, is that, or I have two questions to you guys, um, is that also going to be true to um, future crises that are already on the horizon or that we have sort of uh, muted for now? Uh, is there only one functionally possible really response to climate change? Um, or is there room for national differences? Um, is there only one possible functional response to other global crises? Or is there room for uh, the evolution of national differences? And to put it into a thought experiment regarding COVID-19, uh, what would Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan have done? What would have been um, Margaret Thatcher's and Ronald Reagan's uh, response to COVID, would it have been the same um, as the status responses we have seen um, uh, in this past year, or would it have been different? So I, I don't know what Margaret Thatcher would have done, uh, but I'm relatively confident that the next 12 months, we'll see a wider divergence in uh, government policies related to the current pandemic than the previous 12 months. And so it's in the idea that the, previous, the sense of emergency uh, and the lack of clear economic constraints on the government intervention, uh, or at least not binding one, have uh, uh, muted a lot of the more traditional conflicts that will tend to generate this type of divergences. But has the, the shift focus from containing a crisis to trying to redesign uh, what to keep of the crisis responses, what, what extent to return to the pre-crisis period, and so forth, uh, we're going to see this divergence skyrocketing. And some of the determinants are going to be some of the one that we already know matters from partisanship to ideology uh, to some kind of the societal uh, cleavages. And, um, in many ways, what strikes me is, and the point I tried to make before is, uh, um, of course, there are incredibly different way in which countries have been approaching other type of global challenges. So to me, COVID was in many ways the exception. And uh, climate change is a good example of the way in which uh, we've seen very polarized uh, responses to what is seemingly uh, a common threat faced by countries around the world. I, I, whether that kind of polarization or divergence uh, will uh, increase in the future or not, I'm not exactly sure, but it's definitely it's gonna stay there. Anastasia, any thoughts on what uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan would have done? Is there room for national cross-national divergence in response to crises or is there going to be the one functionally adequate response? Well, functionally, well, difficult question, partly because history doesn't have a conditional clause. Okay, so neither Reagan nor Thatcher here to probably thank God to, to, to do any further damage. However, it's interesting that even in the midst of the pandemic, as the vaccines were still not available, they were still in the development stage, there were political voices from the right suggesting that it's a personal, it's a private 
private individual decision whether to self-isolate or not, whether to follow the guidelines, whether to move or not, or, or, to, or to interact with other people. And it was taken seriously by some corners in the society, media, political spectrum. It does have, the argument does have um, some currency in the sense that, you know, a rationally acting individual is probably in a position to assess some risks, at least on, on an individual micro basis. I will have to say that a neoliberal model of economic planning or capitalism has never been that great in aggregating these individual behaviors into something that is bigger than a sum total of these individuals into a more complex system. It's quite likely that the big crises in the future will be complex crises. They would not be individual. They, there will be individual micro adjustments or crashes and they will be dealt within the system and probably you know, in, a, in a normal business cycle. Um, but a, a much more complex and systemic threat, I don't think it has ever been dealt with properly without coordinating efforts at either national or supranational levels. If you look back at the relatively short 20th century, everything that was achieved in a, as a more or less long-term solution to some sort of disaster was a complex effort of state involvement, negotiation, finding compromise, often internationally, and kind of achieving some sort of rules of the game. I'm not saying they're fantastic rules of the game. I'm not saying they're fair or equal, but there was there was an overall umbrella that does provide um, an umbrella to, to national differences <laughs> where these national differences are being negotiated. Basically, it's about international institutions. There does need to be pluralism or there will be pluralism. And, the, you know, in sort of global ethics, there's a very large debate on climate change, for example, which is an extremely complex crisis. And, you know, not everyone bears the same responsibility for it. So the idea that there would be a uniform reaction to it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, you know, if you live in a state that's in the developing world, uh, your carbon footprint is significantly lower than an American citizen uh, or someone who lives in the United Kingdom or Germany. And uh, it seems a question of equity about who bears the cost of combating climate change. Is it the people uh, who are in the world's poorest states or is it the people in the world's richest states? There is a, I mean, to me, it seems blatantly obvious that the burden has to fall more on the developed world, who has put more carbon into the air, uh, who has benefited more from the fruits of modernity than uh, the majority of humanity. Uh, so there does need to be divergence, but I think Anastasia is completely right that there has to be, an, this is an umbrella, right? Uh, you know, there has to be coordination to deal with this sort of problem uh, out of necessity, right? Out of the sort of the material compulsion of the world warming will force people to coordinate. Now, there is a question about whether that's going to be uh, too late or not, or whether we can mitigate the worst effects of climate change. Uh, but I tend to sort of hold with a, with a more material view of reality as well. When the earth starts or warming and the oceans start rising, people are going to be compelled to get around the table. Uh, otherwise, they're going to be getting around you know, the swimming pool uh, that the planet will become. I'm, I'm wondering um, whether the state is ready to take on that larger role, maybe for just a short period of time or for a longer period of time. And I want to ask you guys this because you are also, um, you know, in the business of, you know, offering advice and, you know, you don't just do research, but you also sort of uh, disseminate that research in policy circles and, you know, sometimes very actively advise politicians at the, both at the international and the national level. Um, so I want to, um, I want to um, say this from the perspective of someone uh, who has, um, who has some friends that are sort of in the medium echelons of sort of state administration and government uh, uh, offices. And um, uh, with the beginning of the COVID uh, scenario, um, they, they've all of a sudden been in a situation where they had to, you know, dole out uh, millions and millions of euros that went over their, that went over their desks. And um, um, previously they've had, they, they, they've done things like political planning and, and, and they never had these kind of budgetary responsibility and all of a sudden they, you know, poof, they, they have real money to, to distribute them. And they were, you know, very, very unprepared for that sort of thing. So Anastasia, you, you do a lot of policy advising. Um, is the state ready for, you know, this um, larger responsibility? Um, 
are some states you know readier than others i i suppose yeah i think um, the, the, you you got the question the, or my answer uh, almost immediately some states are more ready than others for many different reasons one key distinction again goes back to one of the interesting questions of your crystal ball about democracies vis-a-vis -vis other forms of government is that autocracies are typically as we are discovering uh, it's much more easy for them to deal with um, uh, the more complex, if you want, global challenges. China and Russia are part of major climate initiatives that don't need to be bothered with uh, purchasing domestic votes. Somebody decided it's now a program, the country is committed. So that's one thing. There is a size, there is different quality of, of uh, political participation, and it does differ, uh, does depend on the political regime. At the same time, I think what is also important is um, even within the democratic kind of Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-European uh, sphere, there are different political traditions with some political cultures more in tune or more accustomed to uh, long-term planning, to continuity um, and continual presence there is less of a revolving door between politicians and business. For example, in Germany, completely unheard of. You either choose one career or the other, but they never really inter in intersect. And that predetermines or partly explains why um, a particular political culture is more successful in, for example, successfully pursuing a political agenda. Merkel decided to go nuclear free. Germany is going nuclear free. Uh, Europe broadly decided to go uh, for environmentally friendly fuel. It's going to environmentally fuel uh, to environmentally friendly fuel, and um, countries that are exporting oil and gas to Europe are not are not taking that seriously at all. I'm speak specifically mentioning Russia now. Nobody in Russia takes that that threat seriously. Uh, there is one recent case uh, in Lithuania. In fact, Belarus was building a nuclear plant for the past, what is it, more than 10 years. It's been a long and very expensive, uh, very difficult project to build a new nuclear plant very close to the border between Belarus and Lithuania. What happened? European, the European Union decided to ban it. It, it cannot now function because it will threaten the European environmental um, security. Nobody on, in the East took it as a viable political risk to even calculate, to, to um, foresee, to ensure, to discuss what to do. They wasted a lot of capital, they wasted a lot of time, they wasted a lot of opportunity on, on exploring other fuels and they were, they were trying to build a nuclear plant. Speaking of having enough of experts, we are now sort of past the hour mark. Uh, so it might be time for us to wrap up this episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, be sure to like, subscribe, or even dare I dream, write a review. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at The City Politics. You can also follow Constantine at K underscore V O S S I N G. And I'm at GD Blunt. Every new follower is a step towards a blue tick, and then my life will finally have meaning. I'd like to thank our guests this week, Anastasia Nezvitalyova. If you want to learn about how international finance is undermining the state, her new book, co-authored with Ronan Palan, Sabotage, The Hidden Nature of Finance, is out now in paperback. Get your copy today. A big thanks also to Stefano Pagliari. Check out his new article, Exploring Information Exchange Among Interest Groups, a Text Reuse Approach, in the Journal of European Public Policy. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Take care, everyone.